I got two two things I need to address before we get into the uh, actual sermon. Twice this week, uh, those of you that are, that are part of Truvine know that we've only recently started using this house for things like office space and meals and, and children's ministry. And the kids' rooms were recently painted. We've had some volunteers come from out of town as well as people from our own church put in some effort to, uh, to paint those rooms. They look great, I think, uh, because my wife picked the paint colors. So they basically look like a room in my house. Uh, twice in the last week... I've had someone from our host church, Diston uh, Presbyterian, first came and said to me that the neighbors contacted them about us. And I thought, oh no. They said that their neighbors on the corner here said how much they enjoy having us around. Yeah, I did not expect that. I was ready, I was getting ready to pack up or something. And then today they said how much uh, how much they appreciated the the rooms that have been painted and how much better they look and actually jokingly said that they were going to kick us out and move in. I'm hoping that's a joke. Uh, but I just want to say that it's little things like that that uh, build partnership, build reputation, build credibility over time. Just little things. You know, little things, being trustworthy, being good stewards, working hard, sweating a little bit. Um, trying to be a blessing that, that help us. All right, now let me uh, switch topics to one more thing before I get into the passage. Uh, really quickly, I don't want to preach on this today or spend a lot of time on it, but I, I feel like there's no better time than now to address this. Uh, I really quickly want to talk about the Supreme Court's decision this week um, permitting same-sex marriage across the country. Prior to this week, I believe there were 36 states that had already passed their own state law permitting uh, same-sex marriage. So I think there were only that means there's only 14 left that didn't already permit same-sex marriage. So when the Supreme Court made that decision, they, I mean, that took us from 36 to 50. So now it's nationwide. I believe the ruling was that states cannot ban same-sex marriage. So uh, they remove the state's ability to block that. And I, I believe in the process, declare that that's a civil right. Um, so I want to just inform you where our church, uh, kind of settles, or I should say where the leadership of our church settles. You know, we have people come in and out, uh, all the time. I don't know where everybody in the pews is every single week. I know where our leadership is on, on many topics like this. Uh, about six weeks ago, our governing board actually adopted a, a policy it is a five-page document. I'm just going to read you one paragraph, but this is the, uh, it's called the Faith, Community, and Mission Statement. It's something that our church adopted. Our governing board was unanimous in adopting this. There was no, I mean, there was discussion, but there was no division. And this is what this statement that we've adopted has says. True Vine subscribes to the biblical belief that God creates human beings in his image as two distinct genders, male and female, and that the intended gender identity of an individual is determined by such individual's biological sex at birth. Truvine applies this belief regarding gender identity in all policies and programs in the church's faith community. In addition, Truvine subscribes to the biblical belief that God has instituted marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. Truvine recognizes only such marriages for all policies and programs in the, our faith community. 
Further, Truvine subscribes to the biblical belief that sexual desire is rightly fulfilled only within marriage and that unmarried singles who abstain from sex can be whole, mature persons as pleasing to God as persons who are faithful in marriage. So, as I said, about six weeks ago, we adopted that statement. And it's a whole long document. Uh, so let me, ex- let me kind of unpack that a little bit for you. Uh, you know, as of this week, same-sex marriage is legal across the country. That does not mean that it is biblical. It means that it is legal. And so that's the fact. It's legal, but it's not biblical. Because of that, our church, as long as I'm the pastor, and I know Luis is with me on this, we will never perform nor host a same-sex wedding uh, at Truvine. Um, now, that being said, I've turned down a few heterosexual marriages. Um, because just because you're a, a man and a woman doesn't necessarily mean you've got it together. Uh, I think any person who's licensed to perform weddings reserves the right to not perform one that they don't agree with. And so I've said no to a couple straight couples. I've actually never had a same-sex couple ask me uh, to perform their wedding. So I've only ever turned down heterosexuals at this point. I don't like to do that. It's rare that I do that, but I do it on occasion if I have concerns uh, about them um, getting married. Now, so the the fact is that it's legal. It is not biblical. Um, There's six passages that address homosexuality in the Bible. They all say the same thing that it's sin. I don't see this as a gray area. Um, Now, I do want to clarify that believing that homosexuality is a sin and believing that it should be legal are two different ideas. Okay, you know, I'm thankful that all the sins that I like are already legal. You understand what I mean when I say that? I'm joking when I say I'm thankful, but you know, if Okay, Anna gets it. You know, like, I sin daily. None of mine happen to be illegal, though. And that doesn't make me any better. Because if they were illegal, I'd be in a lot of trouble. Um, I think that a lot of times the church, the American church, and the really the church in general's reaction to homosexuality has been fueled more by fear than by love. And I just think anything that's fueled by fear does not accomplish the will of God unless it's the fear of God. Um, so here's, uh, here's where I kind of settle on it. The Bible has not changed. Uh, Orthodox Christians have affirmed that homosexuality is a sin for 2,000 years. And before that, Israel affirmed that it was a sin. Uh, in fact, it kind of transcends culture and even transcends a lot of belief systems. So we're not changing because, number one, we cannot change the Bible. And if we could, I wouldn't want to. I'm very happy with the Bible as it is. That doesn't mean it doesn't challenge, challenge me. It challenges me all the time. Every time I read it, it challenges me. and It, it points out my shortcomings and my problems. Now, while we're... <laughs> I'm going on vacation tomorrow, so I'm just going to say whatever I want and leave. 
and I will deal with it in two weeks. Or I should say, Shay will deal with it. If we're going to make an issue out of homosexuality, or I shouldn't say make an issue, let's also make sure that we hold the same candle to uh, fornication, adultery, pornography, and all sorts of other sins. Because those have been legal for years, and honestly, those are more prevalent in the church. I mean, statistically, 75%, I mean, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble here, but statistically, 75% of church-attending men look at pornography. So that's like a way bigger issue. Uh, things like adultery, things like fornication. I said this at Wissanoming, I'll say it, I'll say it here. If you're not married and you're having sex, you're also in sin. So I, I think we should be uh, equal opportunity offenders and make sure that we're pointing out the truth of all of Scripture because every time that homosexuality is mentioned, it's mentioned in this big clump of other sins that, that a lot of us uh, do. Thankfully, overeating and gluttony are not ever in that list, so I'm good. Uh, Okay, this is a joke, guys. Lighten up. Yeesh. All right. Uh, Two quick things before I actually get to the sermon. I love how Jesus treats the woman who's caught in adultery in John 8. Uh, There's a woman who's caught in sexual sin and adultery. The religious leaders are actually ready to kill her. Jesus saves her life from the from the church people. <laughs> Someone you got you got why that's funny, right? Jesus saves her life from the church people. But then he says, "I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin." And I think that should be our response. It is not our job to condemn, but it is our responsibility to clearly communicate that it is still a life of sin. Just because we don't condemn it doesn't mean it's not wrong. So it is still a life of sin, uh, but it's not our job to condemn or cast stones or anything like that. So I said earlier, while I'm the pastor of this church, we will not perform or host same-sex marriages. At the same time, while I'm the pastor of this church, we will not be homophobic, we will not mock, we will not make jokes, we will not hate, we will not throw stones or any of that. Do you understand? I really think the world could just use some churches that handle this well. And I'm volunteering us to try to be one of those churches that is faithful to the Bible and loves those that are around it. And I do not think love means to tiptoe and and sugarcoat. Uh, But I also know that I've never responded well to a smack upside the face, unless it was from the Holy Spirit himself. Which kind of leads me to the this last thing. This is a quote, it's attributed to Billy Graham. I don't know if he actually said it or not, but it, someone said it. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin. It is God's job to judge, and it is my job to love. And that's where I would like us to settle. The Holy Spirit does not need your help. Nor does God need your input. Uh, Your assignment is to love other people. 
And sometimes that love will mean listening, and sometimes that love will mean speaking and clearly explaining what the Bible says about this topic. Any, oh, I hesitate to even ask. Any questions? No? Great. All right. So let's move on to the sermon on baptism. If you have any questions, probably one-on-one would be a more appropriate place to talk about it rather than on a Sunday morning. So I would love to have a conversation with any of you about it after I get back from vacation. And by then you will have forgotten. All right. Uh, Let me pray for us one more time. And we're going to take a week off of Nehemiah and we're going to be in the book of Acts today. Uh, talking about baptism as we prepare for our church baptism in August. Lord, we love your word, and as much as it challenges us and calls out our own sin, I I thank you for that. I want my sin called out, Lord, so that I can bring it to you and receive forgiveness. And Lord, we we love your word, and I pray that you would illuminate it. Help us to understand what your word says about baptism. I pray for protection and focus in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today we're going to be talking about baptism, and here's why. Because on August 1st, which is a Saturday, we're going to be having a church baptism at a lake uh, near Medford, New Jersey. It's about like 35 minutes from here. But last year we did it, and we had a great turnout. We had about 90 people present. I, I think we baptized about 15 people. One of the best things our church has ever done. And uh, we would like to see it as a tradition, not for the sake of tradition, but because it's one of those things Jesus said to do. You know, when he left the disciples, he said uh, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So one of a church's mandates is to baptize people. Uh, There are many churches that have not baptized people in years. And... If you're not baptizing people on a regular basis, you're failing in some part to fulfill the mandate of Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Now, we're just going to look at three baptisms from the book of Acts. These are all from the book of Acts, so if you have a Bible, you can go to the book of Acts. We're going to look at three of them, and there is this pattern. In all three of them, there's this pattern. Now, this is not a formula. This is a pattern. A formula is like, well, make sure you do this, this, and this, and if you do all of that, everything will be fine. I don't necessarily know that things work out that way all the time, but I do think this is a pattern that we can aspire to. It's a pattern we can measure things by and expect that God is going to do this stuff. If the Holy Spirit's doing the same stuff now that he was 2,000 years ago, I think we can expect this. So uh, what I'm going to need, as we did a few weeks ago, is a couple loud-mouthed, I mean strong-voiced volunteers who are willing to read the passage off of the screen. Okay, so the first is from Acts chapter 2. This is right after, or I should say, this is part and parcel with Pentecost. Try saying that five times. Part and parcel with Pentecost. Uh, Right after the tongues of fire have fallen on the apostles and they've spoken in tongues, 3,000 people are giving their lives to the Lord. And this is actually the follow-up to that. This is kind of the call to response for the sermon. So this is Acts 2, 37 through 42. Would anyone be willing to stand up loudly and read this passage out loud for us? Nice and loud. Jason, go ahead. Okay. 
All right, thank you, Jason. Great job. Very good voice. All right. Now, let me just teach through this really quick. Now, when they had heard this, this is referring to essentially the gospel. Okay, Peter shares the gospel with them. Uh, so when they had heard the gospel, they were pierced to the heart. That, that's, a, that's a powerful phrase right there because not every time that I've preached the gospel are people pierced to the heart. Okay, I've shared the gospel more times than I've gotten a response to the gospel. I don't always share it very well. Peter did a great job, apparently. They are pierced to the heart, and the crowd asks Peter, what shall we do? I mean, normally when a person puts together a nice little teaching or sermon, they come up with a, a response. Well, okay, so now that you've heard the sermon, do X, Y, Z. Very rarely does the crowd ever yell out, what must I do? But at this time, they are. The Holy Spirit had been active here, and they're asking, what should we do? And Peter, I, I, again, I don't know how quick this happened, but Peter says to them, he has an answer ready, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of a three-part uh you could call it a process. I will use the word process, but I want to make sure you don't. It doesn't always necessarily, it's not a neat, tidy, three-step program. Okay, but there are three parts here. Uh, repent first. So when he says repent, he's not, he's not answering softly. The first word, he, when, what shall we do? They ask that, and his first word is repent. Not, not the softest start in church history, but of course he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he says repent. That means to change the way you think about uh, really everything. Change the way you think about the world. Change the way you think about God. Uh, you know, a lot of your life germinates right up here. A lot of the way you act, behave, the things you do starts here, and then your actions follow that. So repent, each of you be baptized. So that's the second step is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And he's... Pretty closely ties baptism and the forgiveness of your sins together, uh, which I think probably a lot of people nowadays would be afraid to do. And then the third part is to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he does out, lay out this, this pattern here. Repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's, he establishes the pattern right there. All right, that's the pattern. So that's good. I'm going to leave that right there. So let's go to the next one which is from Acts uh, 8. If you can uh, give me the next slide there, Shay. And I'm going to need someone to stand up and read this one nice and loud. Any volunteers, any takers on this? Shay, go ahead. All right, great job, Shay. Thank you very much. So the same pattern is present here. 
So when they believed Philip preaching them the good news, or preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So that's not the same as the word repent, but to me that indicates a conversion experience, that they believed what they heard about the gospel, then they were being baptized, and then if you just step down to verse 15, uh, the apostles prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So again, it's the same pattern with the same three elements. There's a conversion repentance experience, then there's an obedience experience in baptism, and then there's a filling experience uh, with the Holy Spirit. You get that? It's pretty clear, right? I'm not stretching to make this, this happen here. All right, go to the next slide for me, uh, Shay. This is from also from Acts 8. I'm not going to have you read anyone read this. I just want to point something out quickly. Philip is preaching to an Ethiopian man, and the Ethiopian man comes to the Lord. And now Philip is showing him through the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, they only had the Old Testament at that point, because the New Testament was being written and lived. So I want to challenge you, to, what would it take for you to know how to lead someone to the Lord just from the Old Testament? Because that's all they had to do. I mean, that, that's how they did it, and they were way better at it than we are, to know how to lead someone to the Lord solely from the Old Testament. Anyway, and, and you know this guy was Ethiopian, so he wasn't coming. He wasn't Jewish; he was African. So the Ethiopian come, converts, and he says, "Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized?" So this is another time where he doesn't have to be cajoled or convinced or tricked or guilted into being baptized, the guy wants to be baptized, and he's actually convincing, Philip, baptize me, baptize me, baptize me. Look, we have some water here. And Philip only asks one question. If you believe with all of your heart, you may. So in this story, there is a requirement, and that's it's heartfelt belief. It's that you have to be completely convinced, sold out, not just kind of thinking about it, not considering it, but have a heartfelt belief. All right, let me go to the uh, the last passage from Acts 19. Great. Can I get one more volunteer to read this one? All right. Don't make Brett. Okay, I, I, you got the side eye there. Yeah. All right, thank you, Brett. Very good. This passage is, I think, uh, this passage is like trying to wrestle a, like a greased-up pig, which I've never done, I swear. But what I imagine wrestling a greased-up pig would be like. So if you, if you just went a, a verse or two back to, to 19.1, which I don't have on the screen, but it says that they came across some disciples. It uses the word disciples. So when I read that, to me that indicates, I don't have it on the slide, sorry. 
Uh, when I read that, it indicates that these people that they're talking about are already Christians. They're already saved, okay? So they're disciples. And then he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay, believed what? I mean, the gospel, I assume. So there's two times in here where I'm pretty sure it's indicating that these people were already following Christ, but that they had some deficiencies in their faith. Now, Paul's question to them is a really important question. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The fact that he asks that question shows me that Paul's convictions about the Holy Spirit seem to be that just what happened at conversion is not the end of the story as far as it relates to the Holy Spirit, that, that, there, that there's more. Uh, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that at conversion you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. But in Ephesians 5, he says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I think what we can deduce from that is that there's always more. That there's something that happens at the moment of conversion where you're sealed with the Holy Spirit but that there's more, there's always more for you. Uh, and that's why Paul says to continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he asks these folks if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And they said to him, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. I don't know what denomination they are part of, but that was a joke. All right. Okay. You guys were like way more lively when I was talking about gay marriage. Now I'm in the Bible and you're like sleepy. All right. So he asked them that question. They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So, you know, their discipleship program was lacking some uh, pneumatology. He says, into what then were you baptized? They're baptized into John's baptism. So here we have these people who I think they're believers. They've been baptized in a John's baptism, and they are then in verse 5, re-baptized in the name of Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. So this story has the same three-part pattern here. There's a conversion process that happens prior to this story. Then there's a baptism, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that receiving the Holy Spirit part, see, I... This is why I think that happens and why I think it's important. Baptism is not a magic spell for you to receive more of the Holy Spirit, okay? Baptism is a step of obedience, and any step of obedience gives you greater access to the Holy Spirit, okay? Any step of obedience gives you greater access to the Holy Spirit. So whether it's baptism or a commitment to follow Christ or a commitment to this or a commitment to that or a change in this or a change in that, any step of obedience gives you greater access to the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the first step of obedience that I think Jesus requires of those who follow him. Um, now, I, I think this is interesting here. that This is a biblical precedent for people that got baptized not knowing what they were doing and got re-baptized correctly. The apostles baptized them a second time correctly with a right understanding. Uh, the reason I bring that up is inevitably, every time we have a baptism, people come and say, well, I was baptized as a kid, but I don't really understand it. I would like to get baptized now that I'm an adult and I understand it. In fact, I'm one of those people. 
uh, because when I was about tw uh, 12 years old, my parents were getting divorced, and for some reason they thought, let's get the kids baptized. I don't know if, what they thought that was going to accomplish, but when I was 12, I was taken to an Episcopalian church. And I was lined up myself, my 11-year-old brother, and a little baby, and I was totally embarrassed to have to hang out with this baby. He was like pooping on himself. He like could not control anything. Um, thank you, Maribel. Maribel gets me. Uh, and they sprinkled some water on us and said some stuff that I didn't understand. And I got a big old tall candle out of the deal. And that was it. It wasn't until I was 14 that I actually made my own decision to follow Christ. And I was about 17 when I actually was baptized. So I was baptized as a kid. I had no idea what was going on. It was my parents' desire, so I just went with it. It wasn't until I was 17 that I was, in my opinion, biblically qualified for baptism. So I, I've been baptized twice. I got sprinkled once and dunked once. Now, uh, inevitably there are people that will come to me and say they would like to be baptized as an adult that understands uh, baptism. And my response is, is gen generally, yeah, let's do this as long as you do understand what you're doing, as long as you can communicate what you believe. If you, if you were one of those folks that was baptized as a child and you're satisfied with that, I'm not going to push you to do it our way. All right. But if you weren't satisfied and you want to make a public statement about your faith in Christ, by all means, just because... You did it once when you were an infant or a little child doesn't mean that we will not baptize you uh, ourselves. Now, what I don't want to get into is every six months you need baptized again. All right, we're going to baptize you one time at Truvine. If you if that don't take, you better go find another church. Don't be coming up to me every six months. I need baptized. I need baptized. Nope, we're not doing that. I think that's a, actually a little bit more what communion is about, which is kind of the repetitive routine or uh, where you where you interact with the Lord through that ordinance, but that is not the purpose of baptism. My opinion is one and done as a believer. Okay? So, uh, I just want to teach real quick and explain uh, just a few things about how we do baptism, alright? Uh, first of all, we practice what we call believer's baptism, okay? So, when we say that, we mean you need to be a Christian who can explain that you're a Christian. Convince me. You might say, well, that's not very nice. Who are you? I'm the one that's going to hold your head underwater. Convince me. If, if, if I'm not convinced, I'm going to hold you down until you, till I am. Just kidding. I'm not drowning witches or anything. Uh, but we believe in believer's baptism. You, you need to know Jesus, and you need to be able to communicate that you know Jesus and that you understand what you're doing. Secondly, we believe in baptism by immersion. The Greek word for baptize means to immerse or dunk. Okay, there's a reason, and I don't mean to, I'm not picking on anyone or trying to offend anyone, but there's a reason we do not sprinkle. All right, well, there's a couple reasons we do not sprinkle. One is there's no sprinkling baptisms in the Bible. Okay, there's none. Uh, so that's a good reason, in my opinion. Number two, in Romans 6, it says that when you're baptized, it is a metaphor for being buried with Christ 
and resurrected with Christ. So that's why we take you, we bury you in the water and then bring you up out of the water. Do you understand that symbolism? Okay, sprinkling doesn't really get the gist of that. Jesus wasn't sprinkled with a little dirt when he died. He was, he was in a tomb locked up for three days. So we do water baptism. Uh, we believe in baptism by immersion, which is one of the reasons we don't baptize babies, because I'm not dunking a baby's head underwater. I'm not going back to jail. Um, now, if you believed in baptizing babies, which I know some people do, Sprinkling would make sense, because that would be a great way to make sure you don't drown anyone. But we don't do that. Um, baptism does not cause a heart change. This is kind of a practical thing that we, that we run into frequently. Uh, often we get people that want to get baptized because they're going through a crisis, and they just kind of need like a shot in the arm, like a Jesus steroid or something like that. And they think that baptism will just kind of push them over the edge. It doesn't. Baptism does not change your wife or your husband or your boss. It does not change your neighbor. Honestly, baptism doesn't even change you. By the time you're getting baptized, you probably should already have been changed. You should have already made a decision to follow Jesus. This is an outward demonstration of an internal change. Um, I compare it sometimes to marrying Jesus. You know, I, I didn't go up to the altar on my wedding day with my wife and say, hope this works. At that point, I had already decided that I was in. And because I had decided that I was in, we had a big public ceremony of it. Which, that is one of the purposes of baptism, to make this public. All right, being, a, being a secret Christian is not really a New Testament idea. So you're making this public, uh, and, a, and you're, you treat it as seriously as a marriage. Okay? Um, baptism is the first step of obedience to, to Christ. Until you follow the Lord and believers' water baptism, your obedience can never be complete. The first thing that any Christian should do is get baptized. Now, I admit it was a three year gap between my decision to follow Jesus and get baptized. I kind of regret that. I just didn't understand it. Uh, and that's how long it took me. But baptism. It, you know, conversion, baptism, and the filling of the Holy Spirit usually happen pretty close to each other in the Bible, not a couple years in between each. We stretch that sucker out so long, it takes us forever. Uh, and you can obey Jesus in a host of different ways, but until you're baptized, you're missing step number one. And uh, the longer we delay it, the longer we're disobedient. It is not an act of magic. It is an act of obedience. I, I want to show, uh, we have a video that's, uh, are we queued up on that, guys? This is a video by a pastor named Francis Chan. We're just going to show uh, Shay the first four minutes and ten seconds. Did you guys catch that? All right. So four minutes and ten seconds. It's not very long. Pretty, pretty straightforward. I love it. And then uh, I'll wrap up shortly after this. The last time I spoke, and I spoke on the Holy Spirit, and it's been so good. I've had so many positive responses about this series on the Holy Spirit. But the last time I spoke, I got a lot of confusion coming back. A lot of people were confused after my last message over one issue. 
when I preach on Acts 2, 38, uh, where the passage says, repent and be baptized and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've had all sorts of emails and phone calls and letters asking, okay, well, it sounded like you were saying I have to repent and then be baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit. And then other people were asking, well, can I be a Christian without being baptized? Others were saying, can I be a Christian without repenting? Can I be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? And when does the Holy Spirit actually come in? If I just repent and do I get the Holy Spirit right then without being baptized? And all these questions came in and I, I want to answer them all with a question back at you. Why do you ask? Because they didn't ask. They, they asked one question. When they heard the message, when they heard the gospel message, when they heard that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he paid the penalty for their sins, he heard that he was buried and he rose from the grave, they asked a different question. They asked, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Peter's response was, well, you need to repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what? They didn't ask any questions after that. What they did was they repented, got baptized, and were filled with the Holy Spirit. I know, it's a crazy response, isn't it? They just did it. But we would rather ask a bunch of questions, and we would rather philosophize and speculate and go, well, yeah, but technically, can't you really, I mean, did they really have to get baptized? I mean, I mean, and when, when did the Holy Spirit come in? Was it when they got under the water? Was that when he came in? Or when they come out? Or was he already in them? Or did it take the Holy Spirit to get them to repent anyways in the first place? Or, or what if they were on their way down and they trip? You know, what, what, what about this? What about that? You guys, they just did it. I, I don't understand the questions. I don't understand where the questions are coming from. Because my seven-year-old, my seven-year-old was in service and she understood. My seven-year-old was in service that Saturday night, comes home crying and says, Dad, I want to be baptized. I want the Holy Spirit in me. I want to follow Jesus. And uh, I go, great, baby. That's great. So you know what you need to do? Come back tomorrow morning and get baptized. And so she did. And she's up here crying and, and asking Jesus, you know, asking for the Holy Spirit to come into her life to help her live the way that she went. My seven-year-old got it. She didn't come home and say, well, okay, Dad, explain this to me. It's crazy, but she just obeyed. It was like those believers back then that didn't sit around as a bunch of theological scholars. They just heard, repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Great, let's do it. They didn't care when the Spirit came in and what second, what moment, what came first. They just did it. And what's crazy to me is that we have gotten so off track in America, and the way we talk about the Bible, that nowadays people say you can be a Christian without repenting, being baptized, or having the Holy Spirit. I mean, how many gospel presentations do you hear where people say, well, just walk down an aisle, pray a prayer, receive Jesus? Okay, where do you see that? I just want to elaborate on 
one main idea that he made, and then uh, actually, could the worship team come up and, and prepare us for communion? I love taking time to have a conversation about our faith. I love dialoguing and having discussions about what we believe. If it's for the sake of learning, if asking a bunch of questions and having a conversation for the sake of delaying obedience is the goal, then that's not acceptable. A conversation that doesn't lead to a conclusion, to me, is a waste of time. Um, And so I'm more than happy to talk about baptism, what it means, what your attitude should be going into it. If the purpose of the conversation is for you to come up with 10 reasons why you shouldn't, I'm not interested in that. And I've sniffed enough of those out in my day that I'll probably just go get something to eat while you convince yourself why you don't need to follow Jesus. I'll come back and then we'll talk again maybe. Uh, I want those of you that have already been baptized, follow the Lord in baptism. I want to ask you to do something. Every time we have a baptism... We, get, we always get a couple people that are interested. And inevitably, there's always a handful of people that the baptism is the last time we ever see them. They come, they take the class, they, they sign up, they take the class that we require. They come to the baptism, they cry and talk about God, and then they get dunked and then see ya. I don't know what they think that accomplishes. For those of you that have already been baptized, here's what I want to ask. Pray against that. Pray for us. I mean, Luis leads the class. He does a great job with the class. I think he makes it crystal clear what we're asking of people. Be praying for Luis as he leads that class. Be praying for people that get baptized. Right after Jesus' baptism, he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. I kind of think that some of us, right after baptism, we get, we get targeted by Satan and tempted. So be praying for them. If you have not been baptized because you are not following Jesus, please come talk to me after the service. I would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, If you are following Jesus but have not been baptized, do not put it off any longer. Um, If you're not ready, that's fine. You have five weeks to get ready, and it should be your number one priority. Um. Sometimes I hear some of the lamest excuses from people about why they can't get baptized. Oh, I want to get baptized, but we were going to go to the beach that weekend. See, they'll say that to me. They'll say that to Luis. If Jesus was standing there, they would probably not say it. If they did say it, he'd probably say something rough. I'm not going to speculate, but I bet it wouldn't be nice. I bet he wouldn't say, it's fine. I was going to die for you, but Rita's has given out free water ice that day. I shouldn't do that, but I shouldn't put words in Jesus' mouth about Rita's. So what we're going to do to, to, uh, to conclude today is uh, because we had a, a, a dedication... And we also, I had talked about baptism and we're preparing for baptism. I thought, why not just round it out? with, with uh, we, we consider baptism and communion to be the ordinances of the Lord. You can take that picture off the screen. I did not get there. Um, did, yeah, I didn't get that far today. 
We consider baptism and the Lord's Supper to be the two ordinances of the Lord that he gave us in the New Testament. And I've done my best to explain baptism today. Communion uh, is a representation of Jesus' body and blood, his body being broken for us and his blood being spilled for us. And so in this bowl we have bread. Uh, the bread represents his body at Jesus' own uh, invitation that we use bread to represent his body that was broken. And this cup contains, this is grape juice, we don't use wine, just out of deference to people that shouldn't have wine. And it represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And in 1 Corinthians 11, it tells us to do this in remembrance of Jesus and that every time we do this, we proclaim his death until he returns. The way that we do this here at True Vine, just a couple guidelines, is that you'll take a piece of the bread and dip it in the, the cup. Please do not drink from the cup, and please do not dip your whole hand in the cup. Other people are going to be using it. Uh, we also, as Paul tells us, uh, take time to examine ourselves. Uh, there is no rush to get up here. This is also not an act of magic. Uh, the purpose of this is to participate kind of metaphorically and join and uh, attach yourself to Jesus' death and to appropriate his death. Uh, and so if you need some time to think about this and whether you're ready for this, take that time. And this is not the only time or the last time we'll serve communion. If you're not ready today, that's fine. You've got the third, generally the third Sunday of the month we do this. But take some time to examine yourselves. And really, this is something that Jesus instituted for his followers. Um, so, you know, I want to ask if you're a follower of Jesus, this is, this is for you. And I want to invite you to come up and do this. While we do, uh, Rachel and the team are going to lead us in We Believe, which is a song we sang at the beginning. So I'm going to pray over the elements, and then at any point in the song, when you're prepared, come on up, take the elements. You can take them back to your seat, and we'll conclude after that. Jesus, I thank you for this bread that represents your broken body, and for this cup that represents your shed blood. Lord, I bless them both as their common elements, but today they serve a divine purpose. And I pray, Lord, that as we take these, that we would encounter your presence. I thank you for these tactile, hands-on reminders of your love for us. So we do proclaim your death until you come. And we do this in remembrance of you. And I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Come on up when you're ready.